1: Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of January 3rd, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk about the college football playoffs, the alleged meaninglessness of other bowl games, and the decisions by Leonard Fournette and Christian McCaffrey to sit out their respective postseason games. We'll also discuss the quarterback crisis in the NFL playoffs and the annual ritual execution of pro football coaches, which this year included Chip Kelly and Rex Ryan. Finally, we'll be joined by ESPN's Kevin Pelton to look at James Harden, Russell Westbrook, and the NBA's sudden surge in triple-doubles. One quick announcement. We're looking for an intern to start working with us soonishly. We're looking for somebody in D.C. who'd be available to do some research on the weekends and be in the studio with us on Monday mornings. If you're interested, email us at hangup at slate.com. Hang up at Slate.com. Our friend and colleague Stefan Fatsis is out this week, but joining me as always from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hello, Mike. Hello. How are you? I am good. How have your last uh, few weeks been without me? They've been okay. I do have an update, a health update. Why don't you
2: uh, why don't you introduce our other guest and I'll get his take on my health update?
1: Sure. With us from All Los right. Angeles. Is Brian Curtis, editor at large with The Ringer, and uh, Mike Pesca's medical consultant. Hello, Brian. Yeah,
3: the Doctor Oz of sports writing, as it were. <laughs> Take it away, Mike.
1: Oh, that's why you're always wearing scrubs. I didn't know
2: you were <laughs> going for that. So I have a. Uh, I have an ailment. I have a virus. I caught it from my girlfriend because, you know, season of giving and how it presents itself is in her. She had a respiratory infection, but also she had pains and aches. And uh, the doctor said it's uh, 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 what's the uh, word? What's uh, arthromyalgia? Yeah. Arthromyalgia. Not Which the just word like I was every, thinking of,
1: but continue.
2: Yeah. Every, every joint hurts. So it was weird. It snuck up on me. At first, I thought I ran wrong because I had like an achy leg and an achy shoulder, but sometimes those are the the those are the, my two normal jo- joints that hurt. But then it all came to fruition, and now my thumbs are just killing me. It's as if I've torn two ligaments in my thumbs, and so I have to strategize all the things that you do with your hands to try not to do them with the, your thumbs. I'm fine otherwise, except I've got... Achy joints and my thumbs feel like I have ligaments torn in them. And I'm just thinking, if I was Jabril Peppers and I claimed this the day before the big game, how hated would I be? There are so many legitimate injuries, maybe not as many with 20-year-olds as with 45-year-olds, but there are so many legitimate things that could go wrong and these guys never complain about it. I don't know. I just think that, do do they deserve more sympathy or, or do we
1: forget that they're actually human? Uh, Brian, the, this is where your your time to shine, <laughs> Dr. Oz.
3: I was going to say, what a transition into our uh, planned topic of uh, college football bulls and injuries.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you should just catch the ball with your chest instead of with your hands. <laughs> uh-huh. Or have it bounce off the helmet, which is always a good sign. Before we get to our planned uh, topic, uh, in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we are going to talk about Brent Musburger's enthusiastic— Sugar Bowl endorsement of Oklahoma running back and assaulter of a woman, Joe Mixon. There has never been a better time to sign up for Slate Plus. For a limited time, we're offering 30% off an annual membership. That's just $35 for a year of Slate Plus with bonus segments of this and other Slate podcasts every week and a lot more. So if you haven't joined Plus yet, sign up before this offer goes away. You can sign up at slate.com slash plus. The most interesting thing that happened during the college football playoff semifinals actually happened after the college football playoff semifinals when Alabama, a 24-7 victor over Washington, announced that its offensive coordinator, Lane Kiffin, would be relieved of his duties before the national championship game. Alabama's win was one of the best examples you'll ever see of a team toying with its opponent while actually not playing very well, and Nick Saban seems to have blamed Kiffin for his offense's failings. Positing that he was distracted by his upcoming assignment as the head coach at Florida Atlantic. In the other semi, Clemson thrashed Ohio State 31 to nothing, setting up an Alabama Clemson rematch next Monday. My first question for both of you is given that both of these games were on New Year's Eve, did you watch them?
3: Yes, in their entirety and without complaint on Twitter, I might add. Haven't we gone way too far in the complaining? about the college football, about when all the college football bowl games happen, there was the... the oh, yeah, I,
2: I, I sign on to that, yeah.
3: Yeah, right, because it was sort of like last year was on New Year's Eve, they moved it up a little bit, and then at last, yesterday it was everybody's, like, I can't believe the Rose Bowl is absolutely meaningless, you know, when you play it after the first semifinal, and then everybody, as far as I can tell, was tweeting about how great the Rose Bowl was during the game.
1: Richard Deitch called it unconscionable, right? <laughs> I
3: think it was like, disgraceful. Oh, yeah. Disgraceful, sorry. <laughs> Not I wasn't aware that bowl games had an inherent sort of grace to them, but yes, that's that's <laughs> yeah. what he
2: said.
1: This Pope speaks of that. I found it interesting, and maybe I just wasn't watching enough commercials or the right commercials, but wasn't it the case that a couple of years ago, ESPN was really playing up the New Year's Eve angle? Like, we're going to change how, you know, you spend this holiday, and all of the promotions are going to be about how exciting this is, um, you know, that it's on New Year's Eve. And this year... I feel like they were not really playing that up. And also, you know, in the next four years after this, it's January 1st, December 29th, December 28th, January 1st. They don't seem like super excited about that idea anymore.
2: Right, right. They don't they about don't Wait, about it. which idea that it's not
1: well, about on promoting front. that it's on New Year's Eve is this great thing. They're like trying to hide it oh, now yeah. and pretend like they never thought that was a good idea. Right. So the ratings went down about 40%. New Year's
2: Eve compared to where it would be really and play really well, January first. So yes, it would seem like let's they're saying let's just not mention this too much. People will watch the games, we'll get through it, and then we'll uh, make a lot of money on all these other days. It seems like December thirty first is only the is the only really bad day. January first, of course, is the really good day, and every other day will probably do better ratings than this year and last year's did.
1: All right, Brian. As far as the entertainingness. Of these games, the meaningless uh, Rose Bowl and Orange Bowl were both far better as a football product, but what did you see in the actual playoff games that you <laughs> that thought was worth remembering or at least talking <laughs> about for 30 seconds?
3: I think you're right about that late Kiffin was actually the biggest story. I mean, not only did it fill the journalistic need to have to have something to talk about between games, which you always have this you know, long layoff, and it's like, what are we going to talk about? But it sort of was... To me, it's like a sign of Nick Saban's genius that he could take a toxic asset, which Lane Kiffin certainly was three years ago when he was hired by Bama, squeeze every bit of juice out of him to both uh, you know, sort of modernize his offense and make Bama into a cool place to be, not just a good football program, but a cool football program. And then when Kiffin got annoying uh, or, you know, had basically run, run his course there at Bama, he got rid of him. And, you know, that's like, to me, that's like what, you know, Bill Belichick does with football players and Nick Saban in college does with coaches and he is replacing him with yet another toxic asset, Steve Sarkeesian. So I thought that was, I thought that was just pretty remarkable how well that worked.
1: It also shows Saban's just, I don't know if cold hearted or bloodthirsty is the right adjective, but I couldn't, I couldn't imagine LSU doing this and that's probably why LSU doesn't win as much as Alabama. Um, It's probably the right move for this team, but it's also just one that makes you look like an asshole.
3: Yeah, and what's so ironic about it, right? Is that part of apparently the calculus in firing Kiffin was that he said during during Peach Bowl media day, an <laughs> <the> otherwise unremarkable <laughs> event in American life, that when we're talking about Saban, he said, "I don't recall a happy moment. I just recall the ass chewings." And then Saban fired him, which is the ultimate, you know, jerk thing to do—a sort of public ass chewing and firing.
2: But if it was anyone other than Saban, I think everyone would be saying, whatever your problems with uh, what uh, your offensive coordinator said, you are in the championship game in nine days, and he did do a pretty good job in those semifinals. Uh, You know, a a good job. U-Dub's defense was good, but uh, especially their run game looked uh, really sharp. I don't know. It seems like egotistical to do it now. How much more do you get out of it? We don't know. Maybe it was so toxic that he, just uh, Kiffin's presence was, you know, uh, hurting the team's preparation. But it would seem that nothing has been hurting the team's preparation. Kiffin hasn't changed who he was. I don't know it's know. It was a little surprising to me. And I, under, I understand why Saban gets the pass, but he is getting a pass.
1: Well, I think anything that Saban does vis-a-vis winning college football games is pretty much unimpeachable at this point. Given uh, the dynastic nature of the Alabama football program, so as far as like being a good person, I think you could question it, but I don't. But in the history of sports, semifinals to finals, has something like this ever happened?
2: I can't think of a
1: time. Yeah, yeah. That, I I can't think of one either. What, Brian? What is your favorite Lane Kiffin firing? <laughs>
3: I think I mean the the Raiders one has a certain ability about it because Al Davis you know just years from death made one of his final public appearances to denounce Lane Kiffin as a liar
1: and there was a PowerPoint
3: involved, <laughs> right? And we hadn't really seen Davis in a long time, right? It was kind of like this uh, you know foreign dictators that sort are of coming out for one last hurrah. Did he
1: have a bandage on his face or am yes. I like, conflating him with the he Raiders did. logo? He
3: did. He did not. He did not look well.
1: Yeah, that was a great Lane Kiffen firing. That was one of the top the top few. There was <laughs> getting fired at the airport by USC. There you was know. um I guess he wasn't fired. He left Tennessee after a year. and right. when people talk about it now, they say there were riots. what <laughs> what did those riots entail? Do you remember?
3: I don't remember that. yeah, usually <laughs> but like do people like do the things they do when they win college football games and Lane Kiffen left, like burn couches and stuff like that?
1: That I do not recall. Uh, Mike, did you uh, watch and enjoy the Rose Bowl and Orange Bowl, both of which were, uh, I think, classic uh, college football bowl games, I could say? I was very happy
2: to watch highlights after seeing the (laughs) score of one of them and to ignore the other one entirely. But I I do think the college football bowls should be better because the thing I like about college football is the innovation. Um, You see it more on offense, but there's also – now defense has to do what it can to catch up there's a lot more risk taking there's a lot more willingness to have weird formations. We saw that in an extra point try. I should like it a lot more. maybe the offensive innovation is so ahead of the defensive innovation with every team but Alabama it's less satisfying and also the bowls should be better to me because one thing I hate about college football is the the mismatches that are you know, agreed upon mismatches, not just like, hey, we play in a division. You got to play Rutgers if you're in the Big Ten or, hey, we're going to pay Presbyterian to, uh, you know, half a million dollars to whoop them. At least most of the games, you know, they're trying to get a decent game. So when the games do come off as exciting and scintillating, I like them. But for the vast majority of uh, bowl season, I'm just like, oh, this is just a money grab. Get this over with.
3: I think it's funny. I mean, first of all, you talk about risk-taking. Penn State's risk-taking was fairly remarkable yesterday because driving for the would-be winning score, they threw an egregiously underthrown deep pass. And then on the next play, they said, let's just, it was almost (laughs) intercepted. And then they're like, I know, let's do that again. And it was intercepted and set up what turned out to be the winning field goal for USC. I think it's funny, too. I mean, it's like before we had a true college football playoff, people sort of complain that there wasn't enough playoff there weren't you know the playoffs weren't long enough enough teams weren't in it and now they sort of complain that because we have a larger playoffs that the bowls have been ruined or they've been diminished in some way and I really don't actually think that's the case I mean I just think if you're a college football fan especially if you're a fan of like USC or something you were totally into that game yesterday you mm-hmm. absolutely wanted to win that game that was not a you know a you know good for you, here's one more game, even though you didn't make the playoff thing. It was an absolutely amazing, meaningful game, and you really wanted to win it. And it really nicely set you up for last year uh, due to the fact that you did.
1: The complaint about there being too many bowl games, or I guess that's just a part of the meaninglessness argument, I just don't understand how the games are harming anyone, at least more than the existence of college football generally harms anyone um the games exist to be on television in case you happen to be watching television they are kind of eminently both missable and watchable depending on you know who you are whether you care about the team or whether you're like stuck in an awkward conversation with your uncle and just need something to stare at for uh, for a couple hours so There is something weird about it being, and this has always been the case, about being the culmination of the season and also just taking place completely out of time with the rest of college football. There's just this (laughs) long gap and also just taking place at times when like maybe even if you're a big fan, you're just not able to watch just because you have other obligations. It's hard to like program it into your life and your schedule. It's just compared to other sports, it's just always been strange, and that's kind of the charm of it. And also, it's just kind of why no matter what the system is, it's just always going to be weird.
3: Yeah. I think the um, I would dispute the part about being a big fan and missing the game. I don't think that's ever happened to me. But uh, you know, I don't think I've ever said, you know, I need to spend time with my family. Sorry, I can't watch uh, Texas uh, play in the, in the whatever terrible bowl they're in. Yeah, it's, it's made for TV content, right? I mean, it's, I think that's what it is. And there's a long history of that from everything like junk, like the NFL's fastest man. I sort of, you know, I put lower bowl games basically comparable to that. And it's, and it's fun for what it is. It's totally, I, I think you're right about harmless. I would say the only thing is like when they make the schools buy all those tickets, Right. Yeah. <laughs> like the mandatory number of tickets for games that no one actually wants to attend, but other than that, yeah, it seems like it's you know, and of course, uh, to come back to your original point or to another point, it's you know harmful to the players who may not you know want to play as few college football games as they can so that they don't get hurt and ruin their NFL careers.
2: Harmful to Jake, but. I would say that the weird thing is that any sport if women's volleyball had this tradition of after the season ends let's take a month and then reconvene for a tournament that would be harmless you know just the nature of football the sport where the NFL once debated adding two games and then decided well we can't that's just inhumane our very existence is inhumane past the point of 16 i mean that comes with harm and there is the you know the the band forcing the band to buy tickets and Uh, how much money the schools have to pay out to. It's not, it doesn't crush them, but it certainly, and this has been demonstrated, takes money away that they could be spending on other things. And when you have, you know, that one day where I think every team was a losing team the day after Christmas, right? Like Miami of Ohio against Mississippi State and Boston College against Maryland, all these like six and six and even losing teams. You say, what is the point? Just a ridiculous money grab. And if the answer is going to be, well, it's good for the fans. that's That's not a fair, of course, they're fans. Short for fanatic, it's going to be good for them to, you know, watch their team. I just think the nature of football, with how tough it is, and then when you add. In the fact that this isn't really for the good of uh, anything other than the people who are running the bowls. They're making money. ESPN's making money. The kids are continuing not to make money. Did all of these players on the team, do you think, really, really want to play in the games? We hear about well, the big names that don't. But what about someone on
1: Boston College who was uh, free safety? Is <laughs> like, oh, God, please end this shit. <laughs> uh, I'd say that's probably a minority opinion. They are like football players mm-hmm. after all uh, and would pre- presumably enjoy playing football. But back to the Fournette and McCaffrey question, Um, I was in favor of Leonard Fournette not playing at all this year, so I was definitely in favor of him not playing in this bowl game. He was hurt all season. He had an ankle injury that never really healed, and he would just keep coming back and keep getting injured. And so that makes sense to me. I'm less familiar with McCaffrey's situation um, about how injured or not injured he was. I am certainly sympathetic to the idea that he wouldn't want to harm his draft stock and would certainly never criticize anyone for sitting out games where they're not getting paid and could potentially ruin uh, their earning potential. The part that I find confusing, though, is this idea, again, that bowl games are somehow pointless or meaningless. They've always been a part of college football, Brian, and so to argue that... This is somehow like an unexpected extra game, or um, that it's somehow more meaningless than whatever you know random end-of-year game Stanford was playing after they've been eliminated from playoff or conference championship contention. Um, that part I found a little confusing.
3: Oh, totally. I mean, it was always, if you weren't playing for anything big, it was always a chance to here's a nice feel-good W for us to end the season with, right? Or a bunch of extra practices that we don't get under NCA rules unless we qualify for a poll. Absolutely. There's no, there's, there's very little difference in that. And by the way, these guys that did skip them, I think they made like ultra, not only do they make rational decisions in the sense of, I don't want to be part of your, uh, you know, conscripted worker college football system. They also like looked, I'm sure they looked at the bowls and Christian McCaffrey was like, do I want to play in the Sun Bowl? Is that something I really want to? Like if if Stanford's in the Rose Bowl, does he skip that game? I would think probably not. Certainly right. wouldn't skip the playoff. But like, I'm going to get a Sun Bowl ring that, you know, I may, that may be at the bottom of my sock drawer for the next 40 years. Like, why would I care about that? Why well, would I worry, worry about that? And that's like totally rational.
1: I, I hate to say that this is the market at work, Mike, in college football, but couldn't you argue Uh that um, this is kind of exactly what you're talking about and and college football reaping what they sow, that if you're going to have all of these bowl games that, you know, at least Mike Pesca doesn't care about, and then this is what's going to happen, that the star players might decide we don't care about these and that will make them less marketable, um, the games, that is. And I don't... Think that uh, the powers that be are going to reconsider having these games, but at least they'll have to pay a little bit for, you know, stocking up on all this bowl game inventory.
2: Yeah. And I think the NFL, now now that the NFL has put its uh, workouts as a spectacular, well, actually, the televised aspect of them isn't what's driving them, but they do have to get quick. They do have to get prepared quicker than they used to, have to get prepared. Bulls pushed back, uh, uh, inspection, meat inspection day pushed up. It's totally rational. What's fascinating to me is that it seems that McCaffrey, whose brothers are in the pros and whose dad was a, a professional NFL player and is a kid of means, made one decision, and Fournette, who's from the Seventh Ward in New Orleans, made the same decision, and they did it for rational economic reasons, but they come from totally different backgrounds. So that says to me that I, I can't see why this wouldn't be a trend. I really, I really can't see.
3: Um, Absolutely, and I would also say the opposite trend. If I'm a, if I'm a guy who's like going to be drafted from the fourth to the seventh rounds, or maybe not at all, I could make the totally rational decision that I'll risk injury to play in maybe my highest profile game of the year on ESPN and improve my draft stock, right? Which right. would be, also be a totally mm-hmm. rational that decision. That makes
1: sense. All right, last thing quickly, Brian. It's a rematch in the national title game between Alabama and Clemson. That was a 45-40 to win for Alabama last year in a very excellent and memorable game that involved a Bama onside kick. What do you think about um, this year? Is it, I mean, the teams are similarly constituted in terms of Clemson having its star quarterback back, Alabama having different players, but maybe one of the the best defenses of all time. So at least going into the game, the matchup seems similar.
3: Yeah, I don't remember, you know, I don't remember a really great championship rematch in college football, at least recently. You know, of course, college football is all about you know sort of like annual rematches because you get your conference rival once every year, that kind of thing. But I don't remember us having a kind of climactic rematch like this, which is makes it really fascinating. And especially from Clemson, who obviously lost an arrow game as you say last year, it's sort of I mean, like if Bama wins, we will all go, we will all say what we said a few minutes ago, which is Ah, Nick Saban won another title. Great. You know, for Clemson and for Dabo Swinney, it's the it's the program making win, right? Everybody is kind of convinced that he's a really good coach, but maybe not a championship coach. We don't quite know. And so there's tons more upside for them if they win.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The matchups are set for the opening weekend of the NFL playoffs, and they are not super great. And the NFC Giants Packers and Lions Seahawks will probably be maybe kind of interesting. In the AFC, it's Matt McGloin or Connor Cook and the Raiders at Brock Osweiler or Tom Savage and the Texans. And it'll be Matt Moore's Dolphins versus the competently quarterbacked Pittsburgh Steelers. It is cruel to make the playoffs and have your quarterback injured at the very end of the season, as the Raiders and Dolphins did. And it is also cruel to have Brock Osweiler be your quarterback, as Houston does still. Given the unsexiness of these matchups, I'm wondering if it's too late for the Cowboys to trade Tony Romo. Brian, what are are the rules on that? I think it's probably not legal.
3: I don't think so. We're kind of waiting for spring to do that, I think. But now, yeah, you're right. There's kind of an amazing opportunity right
1: now. Um, And for anyone who thinks the NFL gives quarterbacks too much protection, this weekend is a pretty convincing counterargument to that idea. Uh, Mike, what do you think of uh, these quarterbacking situations?
2: Oh, I think it's a good reflection and the biggest reason why this has been the worst year in my memory for the NFL. And it has nothing to do. It was actually pretty useful because as the arguments uh, were bandied about that, oh, people don't like the Kaepernick kneel down. Oh, people have finally gotten sick of concussions. One of those things didn't bother me at all. The other thing I've learned to process, and yet I'm hating the NFL this year, and I look at these first-round games, and I see, you know, Houston. Is Houston-Miami one of them? Is that an actual game <laughs> on the schedule? Uh, it, am I getting that right? You're not getting that right. Houston? No, you're No, not. it's Houston the <laughs> Raiders. Houston and the Raiders, was yeah. detailed just okay. moments ago that Houston's playing the uh, Raiders. Yeah, sorry, 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 sorry. Right, and when I see that... Houston and the Raiders and their two quote-unquote quarterbacks as a game that is the only game on TV at the time and a game that they're wanting me to take some time in my out of my schedule to watch. This is among the reasons why this has been just a horrific
1: NFL season. Nothing going on. It does make me think that all of the conversations around what's going on in the NFL and is it, you know, is the game more or less fun and is the product better or worse, it really is all just about quarterbacks. That's all that anyone cares about, and perhaps yeah. rightly so. Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: Because the opposite argument was, hey, look at how exciting the Cowboys are, Dak Prescott. Or, you know, the, right now we're talking about the Raiders as one of the worst team teams. They were once, hey, you know what? Look at what the Raiders are doing. Derek Carr. Everyone, <laughs> there was not one team, hey, this is an interesting story, not one of those teams that didn't also have an interesting quarterback going on.
3: Yeah, but I would also, you know, you could also argue, right, that, and I'd say this as an extremely partisan Cowboys fan, so forgive me, but, you know, like the Cowboys losing their quarterback uh, in his first preseason uh, performance unlocked a greatness in the Cowboys that we perhaps did not know existed, right? they're 13-3 and three in the number one seed, thanks to their backup quarterback who played brilliantly for 90% of the year. So, on the one hand... Are you arguing that
1: Matt McGloin will unlock greatness in the Raiders?
3: (laughs) Well, I am saying it's given us a truly terrible playoff game. I enjoyed the deadspin item, by the way, titled, How Will You Spend Your Saturday Instead of Watching (laughs) Raiders-Texans? But it also gave us uh, one of the great memorable things about the NFL season. And, you know, like, I think people remember... Well, I guess we'll see how the Cowboys do, but, but people remember the fact that the Cowboys ran out of rookie quarterback and rookie running back and sort of dominated the NFC
1: yeah, and I guess it is possible, if not likely, that Connor Cook of the Raiders will be good and will show his goodness in the playoffs. There's something so with the Cowboys, Prescott's greatness as a player has certainly contributed to you know, both his team's performance and the interest in the team. There is also something about novelty. What you don't want to see is Matt McGloin, <laughs> a guy who has played many games as an NFL starter and has been bad. So, you know, those are the two things that can get you interested in an NFL game or an NFL team. It's like somebody or something you haven't seen before or something or somebody that is good. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right.
2: But but even the uh, story of Dallas, uh, Romo going down and unlocking this interesting story, it still supports the idea that the NFL is at bottom a delivery system for interesting stories about quarterbacks. And even when Uh, Odell Beckham seems to be the most exciting player in the league the number one thing about him is how come Eli can't get him the ball a little more often or forces Odell to make these crazy catches so the quarterback is of course uh, always tied up with it and when the Legion of Boom defense was at full boom without Russell Wilson it wouldn't be interesting but it was also it was fascinating to see what they could do to the other quarterbacks so it's all about the quarterbacks.
3: Yeah, and by the way, I'll say this. is If we if we wanted a historical example of some really terrible quarterbacking, you know, uh, ruining the first round of the NFL playoffs, I suggest we travel back to the year of, wait, 2016. Uh, I'll remind you it's guys not. of Kansas City Chiefs 30, Texans 0 in the first round, a Texans team quarterback by Brian Hoyer. And also the um, Bengals-Steelers game from that same year, which turned into this crazy personal foul fest, but was actually fairly you know, ruined or, or shall we say, diminished by the fact that A.J. McCarron started for the Bengals. This isn't particularly unusual, I guess, in NFL playoff history.
1: This is all just feeding into my argument that they need to play the playoffs before the season starts. <laughs>
2: <laughs> or
1: just say they're a series of exhibition
2: games, but then after one team wins, say, all right, we'll let them go on. <laughs> I think the NFL should have just done college football rules this year. There are really only four teams that could possibly win or that you give a darn about. And just let those four play. You got your Chiefs, Falcons,
1: Dallas, and New England. And everyone else, fine, playing your gilded gilded bowl. <laughs> the Chiefs, I think, are an interesting case because they have been really good for the last couple of years. They're 12-4 and four this year. Their quarterback is not anyone that anyone cares about. I'm not sure if that's the correct viewpoint but I think Alex Smith is kind of like if not a replacement level NFL quarterback he's better than that he's like replacement level for quarterback interestingness like I don't mm. think anybody is excited about watching the Chiefs play and I think again this feeds into the idea like when was the last time there was a a team that was like like had huge national interest that everyone was really excited about that had a bad or mediocre or uninteresting quarterback. I mean, maybe Russell Trent, Wilson. Trent Dilfer? Russell Wilson, like, back in his rookie year when he wasn't as good as he turned into. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, that's a good one to think of a team that just captured everybody's everybody's imagination. I mean, the Ravens, I mean, especially the Ravens since, defense uh, that year that they won the Super Bowl, maybe. Who kinda. was that? The Ravens defense that year they won the Super Bowl, kind of, sort of.
1: Yeah, I mean, especially since we're in the era— when, you know, guys are passing for 5,000 yards and throwing for 40 touchdowns, uh, like back in the, you know, the 85 Bears or something like back then, you could plausibly argue that a defense was more, more entertaining than the best NFL offense. But even, you know, with the Ravens, I think that's like pushing it at that point. It's, it's just not the way the rules are. It's now just not really structurally possible for that to be the case.
3: Yeah, and also Matt Ryan is, I think, proving that you can be a really spectacular, productive quarterback who's probably going to win an MVP and also not really capture anybody's imagination at the same time because he's just so
2: boring. That is true. (laughs) That is true. But I think, well, I don't know if it's he's so boring or I think the Chiefs and the Falcons have this thing going on that if you just strip them of their brand identities, people would, you know, be a little more excited about them, take them more seriously. There's a good reason to, especially with the Falcons, to have a very large raised eyebrow about his ability to do anything in the playoffs. But there have been a history of teams where you say, oh, yeah, when's Lute Olsen's Wildcats ever going to do anything? And then that one year they put it all together and they win the championship.
3: Wait, so by brand identity, that, you mean if we just took all the Falcons players and made them the Dallas Cowboys because we'd be more excited because they're just the, the, the bad brand here is the Falcons. I
4: think I
3: mean, the I bad brand that is
2: that. Yes, it's like America's <laughs> team versus not even most of Georgia's team. <laughs>
3: right. I was. I was. Okay. I, that was great. There was, by the way, Ryan had. There were MVP chance in the soon to be demolished Georgia Dome or the soon to be unused Georgia Dome as, this week. Matt Ryan said. His, his comment afterwards was a pretty cool moment. It felt pretty good, which USA Today described as Ryan dropping his usual restraint for just a moment.
1: <laughs> Josh Levine's assignment desk would like a piece on the worst player or the worst seasons to occasion an MVP chant across all sports <laughs> by, <laughs> by wins above replacement or something. Um, Brian, what do you think of uh, Chip Kelly getting fired by the 49ers after one year?
3: I, you know, it's, I, I think it was probably fairly expected that this just wasn't going to work out probably quicker than I meant. I really like the point Seth Wickersham made on ESPN about how Chip Kelly and, and probably the organization, which is this, these days being portrayed as a hapless organization fairly, I think, um, actually handled the Colin Kaepernick thing really, really well. Right? They were quickly out of the box um, saying that they completely supported his right to kneel down during the national anthem. Chip Kelly wound up starting Kaepernick for big parts of the season. He didn't seem to, you know, take any kind of punitive, you know, measure, which I think some NFL coaches, if you believe some of the anonymous comments we read during this whole thing, would have. And, you know, that was kind of a big moment in sports. It's probably a lot bigger than anything else that will happen with bad NFL teams this year. And so I give him credit. Uh, They played a lot of terrible football with terrible football players this year, but I give him credit for that for sure.
1: That's interesting because the thing he was always criticized for in Philly was his inability to relate to players or to manage personnel and to do all of the things besides being a football savant. Then in San Francisco, it seems like the opposite. His you know football genius was not at all manifest this year. The thing that I don't understand is it's the same people that hired him a year ago that are firing him. Now you can you couldn't plausibly believe that given the talent on that team, that he was gonna somehow single handedly transform the franchise in just a few months. It just it doesn't really make sense.
3: Yeah, this is sort of interesting to me about the NFL. In the NBA, right now we have this real and in baseball of course too, we have this real cult of the GM, right? And I think in the NFL Right now, most of these GMs are fairly faceless creatures. Would you agree with that? that we just The cult of NFL fandom is much more based around coaches.
1: Yeah, Like definitely. Jim Kelly
3: got tons of, whereas, you know, Trent Baalke is a fairly anonymous figure probably by his own design. And without looking at it, I would sort of look around at that hilarious uh, press conference that Buffalo's GM gave this week where he said he didn't have anything to do with the firing of the coach and he didn't even understand why the coach had been fired even though he's the GM of of the team, that maybe there's like this GM crisis in the NFL as much as there is a coaching crisis. And so many of these hirings and firings can be traced to just pure front office incompetence by people that we hardly know.
2: Well, I don't know about the 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 hiring, I guess, could be justified as that his first year in Philadelphia he had flashes of genius obviously he was so good in college he outthought the rest of college football maybe we could bring this magic back closer to home where we saw him do his thing in Oregon and then you quickly realize that he's not understanding the rules of the NFL it's not just that he has this system that's adaptable and if only he could find if only he could get away from the things that were stopping his system from clicking he has no system and I think looking at him and the things he was trying to do like Captain Queeg with the strawberries recapturing is it that you know you? if you're the GM you ask yourself I think or you say to yourself I think Chip Kelly's a genius who outsmarted a system but then you quickly realize ah Chip Kelly's a guy with one idea and when that idea has come and gone he he's not adaptable to the next idea I gotta cut bait right now and I think that's what happened
3: which is granted an improvement over Jim Tomsola who had no ideas about how the coach an <laughs> yeah. team and also got fired after one season
1: That's a good way to end. On New Year's Eve, Oklahoma City Thunder point guard Russell Westbrook got a triple-double in a win against the Clippers. That wasn't a huge shock considering Westbrook had 15 triple-doubles going into the game and is in fact averaging a triple-double with 30.9 points, 10.4 rebounds, and 10.5 assists per game. What made this latest feat notable is that he got double figures in points, rebounds, and assists in the first half. But that wasn't even the most spectacular triple-double-related feat on December 31st. In a win over the Knicks, James Harden had 53 points, 16 rebounds, and 17 assists. That was the first 50-15-15 game in NBA history. The Elias Sports Bureau reports that Harden was involved in 95 of Houston's 129 points via his own baskets or assists. That was the second highest total in NBA history behind Wilt Chamberlain's 104. He got two assists in that 100-point game in 1962. Uh, joining us to talk about the year of the triple-double in the NBA is Kevin Pelton of ESPN. Hey, Kevin. Hey, guys.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: Sure. And I want to start back with Westbrook, who has a chance to match Oscar Robertson's feet from 1962. That was a, a big year for the NBA. Uh, he averaged a triple-double for a whole season. Before this year, my sense was that this was something like hitting 400 in baseball, which hasn't been done since Ted Williams in 1941, that the sport and the league have changed so much that it seemed like folly to imagine this would ever happen. You've simulated the chances of Westbrook doing this. I'd like to talk about that. But first, was I wrong to think that someone like Westbrook or LeBron or James Harden would not even come close to this?
4: Not really. I mean, I think the one thing that is kind of helping their chances uh, and, you know, kind of makes – 2016-17 somewhat akin to 61-62 is how much pace of play and scoring have increased this year and that's kind of one of the reasons for you know the the remarkable individual numbers that we're seeing from guys this season uh there's a pretty strong correlation as you'd imagine between the pace of play around the league and then the number of triple doubles you see around the league so that that going up has helped But at the same time, you know, I think that my thought would have been similar to yours in that it was easier for an individual to, you know, rack up these kind of incredible numbers, you know, 50 years ago when there was a lower level of play probably league-wide, a handful of stars who could have played in any era, but not the same depth of talent that you see now with, you know, the NBA drawing players from all over the world, not to mention drawing them more efficiently from uh, the
1: American population. And this is the Stephen Jay Gould argument about hitting 400 in baseball, that as the talent level rises, it gets more and more difficult for an individual to put up a crazy stat line, like 400 or averaging a triple double.
4: It, it really is remarkable Then you know, in some ways it's harder than hitting 400 because we've only seen one person ever do this. Plenty of people hit 400 back in the day in baseball, which obviously had a longer history than, than the NBA did. So in some ways, maybe it's even more remarkable. So I thought
2: it was more like some NFL defensive statistic, especially. Because it's precisely because of the pace of play. And perhaps people say, oh, yes, that makes it easier or harder. Actually, it affects it so fundamentally. I've read that Magic Johnson would have had four average triple-double seasons if he if his Lakers and the NBA then had played at the same pace of play as Robertson. And Robertson might not even have had his triple-double, has had his pace of play, you know, be what the NBA has been used to. I will say this about Oscar Robertson. He didn't know, and they didn't know then that a triple-double would be such a big thing. Because if they did, you would imagine that he did it in his second year when he averaged 11.4 assists and 12.5 assists. But then in his fourth year, he averaged 11 assists and 9.9 total rebounds. So all the guy had to do was care. And then in his rookie year, he averaged 10.1 total rebounds and 9.7 assists. If you round it up from 9.5, I think he has 3 seasons of or 4 seasons of averaging a triple-double, which gets me to my question. Trip, triple-double is great shorthand for a fantastic all-around player. Is it the ultimate shorthand like if you do that, you're certainly better than what James Harden or
4: even Anthony Davis is doing? No, I mean I think that's a perfectly fair question. Like if we were to take, you know, if you're to say Westbrook averages .5 fewer rebounds per game, and that's enough to take him out of the triple-double, but he averages another assist per game. Is that somehow a less valuable player? Like, no, on its face, pretty obviously not. And and it is an interesting question to what extent, you know, he Westbrook is chasing triple-doubles. Uh, you know, the scorekeepers know. Like, there's there's a lot of elements in here that that set up to to combine to, to favor him. It's kind of odd that, you know, obviously no one had coined the term triple-double. It's still odd that they, they didn't think of it is like something to really chase back then, because it is humans have always been obsessed with round numbers. Well,
3: I just wanted to say, I thought it was funny. I was reading about Michael Jordan, who had seven straight in 1989, is that right? For consecutive triple doubles. That streak was all based on the fact that Michael Jordan was playing point guard in 1989 for this really stretch, which is like, it turned out to be a fairly bad experiment for the Bulls. And so they pulled him off point guard, and then he went on to be the Michael Jordan we all know and love so that the last streak of this was just basically, basically based on a player playing out of position?
4: Although it's an interesting comparison with Harden, where you know, this year you have, you know, he's always kind of had the ball in his hands a lot, but this year you have Mike D'Antoni telling him, you are the point guard in addition to bringing the system with you know, better pick-and-roll opportunities and then improved shooting around him, and that kind of helps explain why Harden has, uh, has put together these historic numbers in his own right.
1: Yeah, you can't really complain about the results with the Rockets. And with the Thunder, this is obviously happening after Kevin Durant left for the Warriors. And it's not like you really want anybody else on the Thunder to have a higher usage rate than Russell Westbrook does. I guess the question is, is there a point at which going for these numbers does hurt your team or could hurt your team? I don't know if the Thunder— would be a great example of that, just, again, because Westbrook is, you know, by far and away their best player.
4: Yeah, I mean, certainly there's the could, particularly if it's going for the numbers for the sake of the numbers. You know, if it's, you know, Westbrook stops defending on the perimeters because of the fact that he's so obsessed with getting into the glass for rebounds that, uh, you know, he's, he's no longer defending his man. I, I don't think there's any evidence of that so far this season, but th- there's that element. I think the biggest question with Westbrook right now is just this load that he's carrying. It's so far beyond what anyone else has done in NBA history uh, in terms of, you know, his usage rate and especially in combination with being a point guard and, and creating so much offense for others uh, that you wonder, you know, will that eventually take a toll on him down the, by the end of the season physically. But, you know, the, he's been pretty clear. Billy Donovan has been pretty clear that like, this is just the only speed he knows to play at. He can't do anything else. Even if, you know, somehow that would be better for the team. So Kevin, you're,
2: uh, one of my favorite stats gurus as well as humans on earth. But I think of you primarily as a stats guru (laughs) and, what does what he's doing, which to the layman seems the most amazing um, accomplishment, shall he, should he continue it in uh, the NBA to even learned people? No one can believe it when you take it to the context of how, what the Thunder were supposed to be. And even though the West, especially like with that eighth spot, uh, I think maybe the... Uh, the Oakland Raiders are going to be able to qualify for that. But uh, so so the team contribution is there. But then you look at the advanced metrics when they have uh, there's the player efficiency rating and win shares and even offensive rating and offensive uh, win shares. I don't know what the go to stat is, but if you look at win shares, Russell Westbrook's somehow 10, you know, Harden's one and then Durant's two He's 10. He does well in the much discredited VORP statistic. But does this give a rendering on what are the best statistics that summarize the total value of a player?
4: Yeah, I mean, I guess what I'd say with you know Westbrook in particular is... He's so far off the charts in in certain areas that it starts to like show the differences between these these different metrics. Is I guess I guess the way I'd put it. I mean I'm surprised he's that low in in win shares. Not having looked at closely at it, that one tends to be the most influenced by kind of team performance of the major all-in-one stats, and and I think that's an element of it. Uh, You mentioned VORP, which is uh, based on box plus minus, and and that's basically trying to predict from your box score stats what your adjusted plus minus impact is going to be on the team. And there he actually has the highest, highest rating in NBA history. So far this yeah. season, because of the fact that one of the factors in there is kind of like a, a combination term of your assist rate times your usage, I, I believe. And that is just so enormous for him that it, it's off the charts. But the other, you know, all in one stat that uh, gets a lot of uh, credit is real plus minus, which we calculate on ESPN.com. And, and that combines kind of that adjusted plus minus, how your team does with you on and off the court with that box plus minus type uh, thing of, you know, you know, how well do your do your box score stats predict that? And it's surprising that Westbrook and Harden aren't number one in that one either. That's that's also LeBron. Uh, in Harden's case, it makes more sense because their second unit has played really well since Patrick Beverly has been healthy. They've got Eric Gordon kind of keeping the offense afloat even when Harden isn't there to create shots. In Westbrook's case, the Thunder have really fallen apart offensively when he's been on the bench. So I think he probably is going to end up near the top of the league in RPM, if not the very top. And the That probably will confirm, you know, what we've seen in terms of his individual stats.
1: Why would that be a good stat if it's Harden's performance and it is affected by whether Patrick Beverly is hurt or not?
4: (laughs) Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, basically, it's Beverly's return had more of an impact than you would expect it to have. So now the difference between Harden and the team without Harden is not as large as you would expect based on knowing how good Patrick Beverly is.
2: Okay. But it does get to the idea of the value of a player because obviously Westbrook, you know, I'd, I'd vote him my MVP. But the reason that he's been able to shine to this extent is how little the thunder have around him. Whereas LeBron James didn't get any worse. And I really do think LeBron James is would be more... Um, correlative to winning your championship than Russell Westbrook. But Russell Westbrook, maybe LeBron James in this situation, with absolutely no one around him, could put up similar numbers. But, you know, what is the MVP? What is value? It is a great thing that he's getting this chance to shine, but the only reason is he's getting this chance to shine is because of the other bad basketball things around him. We don't necessarily get this sort of... um, we don't get this sort of phenomena in other sports, right? Where you're held back by the fact that the rest of your team is decent.
4: No, I mean, it's hard to imagine someone making that case in football where, you know, I, I don't know who the answer would be this year. David Johnson, I guess, for MVP because of the fact that the the rest of Arizona uh, offense was so bad this year. Yeah. Right. You know it. You do see that the most valuable individual seasons by the advanced stats, pretty much whichever advanced stat you look at, other than, you know, like I said, win shares, since it tends to be more affected by winning, guys have their most valuable seasons when they have less around them. Jordan's, you know, best individual seasons statistically were the, the mid 80s seasons that we're talking about, or late 80s seasons before Scottie Pippen had developed into an effective sidekick, and, and not the, the seasons in the two, three peats. Uh, I, I think it makes sense, though, because, you you know, one of the core concepts of basketball stats that Dean Oliver pioneered many years ago is that there's this trade off between uh, the usage a player has and how efficient they are. And the reason superstars are superstars is because they can increase their usage much more than other players without seeing the same drop off in the efficiency. So when you put star players together, like you know, Cleveland or Golden State this year, uh, even though that's the best thing for their team winning, you're not getting the full value of those guys because they're not able to push out their usage. All
1: right, let's button this up by um, having you, Kevin, say what um, your projections show with regards to, you know, the chances that Westbrook will average a triple-double, and then I will uh, even undercut you before (laughs) you even say it, because to Mike's point, we love round numbers. Russell Westbrook clearly loves round numbers. And it seems to me that if he's close,
4: then he's going to get it. Right. And that's the factor that's tricky to simulate is how, how much that's going to come into play. Uh, his, his projection dropped a little bit. I just ran it earlier this morning. And uh, we're, we're tracking this all season on ESPN. There's a, a Russell Westbrook triple-double tracker. But currently have him at a 13.7% chance of getting there. That's way too low, right? I, I don't know about way too low. Because, I mean, the the one big factor is how much he's going to drop off the rest of the season. His rebound percentage this year is way beyond anything we've seen from him ever before in his career. Right. Uh, way, way beyond. And, well, you know, some of that, again, is under his control and, uh, you know, can be manipulated a little bit. Anytime you're that far uh, above your career mark, you do expect some regression to the mean.
2: I think it was Brian. This is what he needs. He needs a, he needs a 20-game suspension. Because if he gets if he has an injury he'll be, that'll nag him but if he just gets a twenty game suspension he'll be <laughs> fresh he'll kill most of the stats he's already accumulated will count for more that's the key
1: but I think it was Brian's uh, boss Bill Simmons who said on a podcast that Russell Westbrook's inevitable devastating season ending injury will be what uh,
4: gets him the triple double for for the year similar argument. It is weird that it helps his chances. Uh, I don't know about a 20 game suspension, but he's already, I think, sitting at 10 technicals so far and you get suspended every other technical starting with number 16. So that, that could help
2: him. <laughs> so the 17th and 19th technicals will be the sweetest ones. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Kevin, thank you very much for joining us and we will be on triple double watch for the rest of the year.
4: As it, we all will.
1: Appreciate it. <laughs> Now it is time for afterballs, and there's a wide receiver for Alabama named Garrig Dieter. And Mike, you've done some exploration of the Dieter family tree.
2: Yeah, he's from South Bend, even though Notre Dame is one of the few college teams Dieter never played for. He played for SMU, and then he played for Bowling Green, and now he's playing for Alabama. I did not know college work like that. But anyway, Gehrig is indeed named for Lou Gehrig. He has a brother named Nolan, but the dad's actually not only a weightlifting champion, but a huge Yankees fan. He named his brother, uh, Gehrig's brother's name is Thurman, and the dad's name is Derek Dieter. And so I tried to shame the man. If he was a big enough fan on Twitter, he'd change his name to Jerick Dieter.
1: How's that working?
2: The uh, Thurman retweeted me uh, some sort of uh, sharp put down. <laughs> <laughs> Let me quote it directly, okay? Uh, my tweet was, Garrick Dieter's brother is named Thurman. However, his dad is Derek Dieter. If he had real commitment, he'd become Jerick Dieter. And Thurman Dieter, at T. Butta, tweeted me. These are the moments I live for. Hashtag hard work pays off. I don't know know what
1: that means. (laughs) He seems
2: like a funny guy, though.
1: Mike, what is your Jarek Dieter?
2: Lavelle Edwards died, the uh, legendary coach of BYU, real first name, Reuben. Reuben Lavelle Edwards. And I found out about this, as I'm sure many do, by following the Twitter and Instagram feed of United States House of Representative Republican Jason Chaffetz. Now, I knew that Jason Chaffetz had a tie to uh, BYU. I don't know how this escaped me. He was a place kicker at BYU. He was recruited by Lavelle Edwards. And uh, he, even though, uh, Stefan's not here, but uh, Jason Chaffetz in an article for the Daily Beast does the self-deprecating thing, which also deprecates his position, saying that, I was a college football player. Actually, I was a place kicker. Those are two different things. So I'm sure Stefan would hate that. Now, I was looking up Jason Chaffetz's career at BYU. Wasn't that great a kicker? Made almost all of his extra points, but he did play at a time when there were a lot of extra points to be made. In fact, his uh, second year, he spent two full years as a kicker. His first year, he had 11 field goal attempts and 38 extra point attempts. In 1989, Jason Jason Chaffetz went 10 for 14 in field goals and 53 of 56 in extra points. This was the Ty Detmer era. It all comes in full circle and we can see how it affects his legislative career when Jason Chaffetz is one of the few members of Congress to vote against a bill honoring Joe Paterno. This was in 2010. The House of Representatives passed a resolution to honor Penn State's legendary football coach for his 400th career win. The vote passed 417 to three, and Jason Chaffetz was one of three to vote against it. And Chaffetz just said, sports teams and heroes get more than their share of adulation. Let's start recognizing teachers and scientists. But Politico did note that Chaffetz and Paterno had met before. So I take you to the SeaWorld Holiday Bowl in Jack Murphy Stadium, 1989. Ty Detmer, sophomore quarterback for BYU, passes for 576 yards. He is storming up the field to try to put the Cougars ahead when he is stripped. Gary Brown, blitzing defensive back, Gary Brown strips him in the last seconds and sprints 62 yards for the game's final score. It is 50 to 50-39. Detmer says, we felt we could score at any time we touched the ball. When I was stripped, I was just about to throw the ball and suddenly I couldn't feel it. Jason Chaffetz did have two field goals in that game. The Cougars got inside the Penn State five-yard line in three times in the first half. They only got one Detmer touchdown pass and two short field goals by Chaffetz. And so perhaps that is why Jason Chaffetz voted against the Joe Paterno Amendment. It should be said that BYU gave him a lot more than football. He both became a Mormon, eschewing his Judaism while at BYU, and became a Republican. Not only was Jason Chaffetz a Democrat, His dad used to be married to Kitty Dukakis and was the chairman of Dukakis's Utah run, even though it was his ex-wife who was married to Kitty Dukakis. Anyway, Chaffetz is now, let us say, a leading light of the Republican Party, and he mourns the passing of Lavelle Edwards.
1: I didn't realize we could ask Jason Chaffetz fun hypotheticals about Kitty Dukakis. (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) I interviewed him in his uh, house office one time about his football career. And he uh, r- regaled me a great length about him kicking the winning field goal in the 1988 Freedom Bowl. And I asked oh, how he freedom. celebrated on the field, and he made pistols with his hands and pumped them in the air, which sounds exactly like a kicker celebration.
1: And <laughs> Also a member of the House of Representatives. One of, one of uh, the lesser-known Gramatica brothers. There you go. Uh, Brian, what is your Jarek Dieter?
3: Well, my Jared Dieter boys is a further examination of Lane Kiffin mentioned earlier on this podcast and why we're so fascinated with him. I think this is because Kiffin is a unique breed of coach, one we don't see very often, or at least in such high-profile jobs. Lane Kiffin is an incompetent scoundrel. Now, there are football coaches whose public affect is incompetence, like the great Jim Sula, also mentioned earlier, there are certainly scoundrels like the University of Indiana's Kevin Wilson, who recently got axed because he created an unhealthy environment for injured players, according to the Chicago Tribune. And, of course, occasionally you'll see the hyper-competent scoundrel like Louisville's Bobby Petrino or the disgraced Baylor coach Art Briles. But rarely do you get a chocolate-in-my-peanut-butter combo like Kiffin, <laughs> the guy who lost his job in part because he criticized his own head coach during the Peach Bowl's media day. Now, how did Kiffin pull this off? Well, it turns out nepotism is helpful in being an incompetent scoundrel. Kiffin's dad was Monty Kiffin, a longtime NFL defensive coordinator. This meant that Kiffin was hired for his initial jobs based solely on his surname. And Kiffin is almost like a dictator's son that assumes power when his strongman father passes into the great beyond. He's sort of the Kim Jong-un of college football in that way. Kiffin also benefited from a kind of unofficial nepotism. He replaced Philip Fulmer who won a national title at Tennessee, Pete Carroll at USC, And even the Alabama offense, as we know now from his unfortunate press conference, was highly micromanaged by Nick Saban the whole time he was there. To be an incompetent scoundrel, you have to basically be lazy. Kiffin didn't have any interest in working his way up at small schools. His dad once told Sports Illustrated he preferred to go straight to the top. You can't be especially bright to be an incompetent scoundrel in 2007. I actually interviewed Kiffin at the NFL owners meetings right after he'd become coach of the Raiders, and I came away thinking that might be the dumbest famous person I've ever spoken to in my entire life. But this is actually key because Kiffin kept getting jobs because people couldn't believe how that he was so incompetent. He basically preys on our sympathy that we can't believe that someone with a job that big would be that dumb. You also have to be ruthless to be an incompetent scoundrel, right? You have, you have to try to overcome your inherent haplessness to stab your rivals in the back. So when Kiffin got the University of Tennessee job in 2009, he immediately accused Urban Meyer, the reigning king of the SEC, of committing a recruiting violation. It turned out that the rule Kiffin accused Meyer of breaking did not actually exist. And in fact, in a Trumpian twist, Tennessee would wound up being hit with its own charges of NCAA violations during the Kiffin regime, after Kiffin had left town, of course, And also in 2009, Kiffin claimed to Sports Illustrated that when someone from the Tennessee uh, Sports Department was 25 minutes late in picking him up from the airport, he fired the university employee in charge of setting up the ride. That's 25 minutes that Nick Saban and Urban Meyer had that I lost because somebody was late picking me up at the airport, he huffed. Tennessee's AD later clarified that Kiffin had not actually summarily fired anyone, which, of course, was impossible at a public university like Tennessee. At high-profile jobs like USC and Bama, we can all appreciate Kiffin's haplessness. At his new job at Florida Atlantic, he'll be consigned to games on ESPN3 and the occasional punitive takedown from a college football insider who has a grudge against him. We college football fans thus await our next incompetent scoundrel, a man who is dumb and evil in equal measure. (laughs) That's
1: great. Uh, Isn't uh, part of it that he's young, and so there's some kind of shine that attaches to someone who's able to get these jobs while being uh, fresh-faced. If he was really really old and all the stuff was happening to him, it would would be a lot less intriguing and just more sad.
3: No, I think that's right. There's a little bit of that about Jason Garrett with the Cowboys. It was like, hey, he got a job when he was so young. He must be an offensive genius. And it's like, oh, wait, maybe he's not. He just got a job when he was really young.
1: (laughs) Wonderkind. No, just young person. Hey, what's your Jarek Dieter, Josh? Thank you, Mike. Appreciate the question, as always. My Jarek Dieter is uh, about the best story of college football bowl season, which is that a player for Arkansas got suspended for the Belk Bowl (laughs) after shoplifting (laughs) from a Belk department store, which I'm at least assuming he got better stuff than if he was suspended for shoplifting at the Dollar General Bowl. But actually, we can check this. SB Nation has a list. Of the swag that players get at every bowl game, players, you know, don't listen, Mike and Brian. People that say that college athletes don't get anything, because at the Dollar General Bowl, they get a leather duffel bag. But wait, there's more: pure boom wireless headphones, a Wilson souvenir game ball. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that sounds uh, even worse when you read it out loud. An RTIC Soft Pack Forty cooler which maybe is what it sounds like it is, a timely watch company watch, um, and that's it. Enjoy those leather duffel bags and that game ball, players from Ohio, U and Troy, in a game that Mike Pesco would almost certainly deem unnecessary. What's, yeah. what's actually most popular now, looking at this list, is the gift suite. Brian, you've been to uh, some of our major games. Have you, sure. have you witnessed a gift suite in action?
3: I have never entered or witnessed a gift suite.
1: So they all seem to be put together by this one company. It's called Performance Award Center, whose website is still bragging about being the supplier for player gifts to all of the 2011 college football BCS bowl games, including the Tostitos BCS National Championship game, the website of Performance Award Center, and the heart of Brian Curtis, the two places where the BCS still lives. (laughs) The, the website continues, Pack Sports is home to the gift suite, introduced successfully as the best way to supply a multitude of choices to gift recipients that participate in various sporting events. Again, courtesy of the not quite up-to-date uh, PAC uh, Inc. website, they have a video of what the gift suite looks like. And it is uh, from whenever it was that Central Florida Made uh, a BCS ball that was in the Blake Bortles era, right? So it's it basically looks like a game show, like a a lower tier game show, where they just have the products the products up for bid, kind of lined up in a locker room area, and the players are all going around, and you get like points you can use up to six points on various bowl gifts, and so instead of uh, you know being told you're getting this leather duffel bag. You're going on a sanctioned, non-Jeremy Sprinkle-esque shopping spree in this suite. And based on my research, it seems like the one gift that every player always takes from this gift suite, it seems to be in every gift suite and all of the players like it, is the- Can I ro- guess what it is? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to guess that it was a uh, Sony PlayStation. It is not. It's more interesting than that. A little stranger <laughs> than that. Brian, do you know? Do you have a guess?
3: I just keep thinking of the old uh, Wheel of Fortune where you went shopping after you won a puzzle <laughs> and there was that Dalmatian at the oh, end. Yeah. And everybody <laughs> <laughs> Ceramic always Dalmatian for money. 200 Yeah, that was yeah. great. All right, so I'm going to go Ceramic <laughs> Dalmatian.
2: And would you
1: like to on a gift card or? <laughs> Close.
2: <laughs> on a count, yeah.
1: yeah. So an <laughs> the answer is that it's a recliner and the thing that's always mentioned about the recliner, well, A, it has a cup holder, which obviously, but B, it has two... Um, USB ports where you can charge your phone. So it's like everything you love about a recliner with everything you love about a battery all in one device. (laughs) I think it's this thing, it's it's from a company called Southern Motion. I'm looking at a sports business journal article from 2013. There's one called a Viva. It's a powered home theater recliner that has two USB ports that can charge mobile devices This company is based in Pontotoc, Mississippi, Pontotoc-based furniture manufacturer. This is what you should get for the uh, college athlete in your life.
3: I think Southern Motion was also the offense that UCF (laughs) ran in that Fiesta Bowl, if I'm not mistaken.
1: (laughs) Southern Motion is a great name for a company. I feel like it might be wasted on that particular company, but...
2: (laughs) (laughs) I have by the way I have in front of me Jeremy Sprinkle's arrest record. First of all, do you know he got a 20% discount at <laughs> at Belk? I guess he wanted the hundred. Well, and also they got a, gift, had a card. gift card. Yeah, he got gift a gift card. So I was just thinking isn't it isn't couldn't he plead I don't understand how <laughs> gift cards work? <laughs>
3: I just and thought you went and selected an item from the from the store.
2: <laughs> the Nike Crew Black socks and a, a couple wallets, but here was my favorite one: the Saddlebred Tandoori Spice Marl Collar shirt. Yeah, he almost made off with a Tandoori Spice
1: shirt.
3: So his defense is essentially he thought a Belk store was a gift suite.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bringing it all together. Thank you, Brian. Uh, wrapping up in a way that I couldn't think of myself. Uh, we love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Thank you to Brian Curtis for filling in this week. Our producer this week was Afim Shapiro. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember, Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.